Today's episode of the Duct Tape Marketing Podcast is brought to you by Blissful Prospecting, hosted by Jason Bay and brought to you by the HubSpot Podcast Network. Host Jason Bay dives in with leading sales experts and top performing reps to share actionable tips and strategies to help you land more meetings with your ideal clients. Recently, they did a show on the four-day work week. I'm a huge fan. I think everybody should be looking towards trying to create that. Hey, we get most of our work done in like two hours every day anyway, so let's try out the four-day work week. All right, listen to Blissful Prospecting wherever you get your podcasts. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Duct Tape Marketing Podcast. This is John Jantz and my guest today is Matt Dixon. He's a founding partner of DCM Insights, the Customer Understanding Lab. He is also a frequent contributor to Harvard Business Review with more than 20, and that's probably gone up since then, print and online articles to his credit. His first book, which he came on the show for, The Challenger Sale, sold more than a million copies worldwide, was the number one Amazon and Wall Street Journal bestseller, but he's got a new book out to Depending upon when you're listening to this, it'll be out in September of 2022. It's called The Jolt Effect, How High Performers Overcome Customer Indecision. So Matt, welcome back to the show. Hey, John, great to talk to you again. It's been a long time, but I hope to be back with you. So, so I do recall of the Challenger sale, you did exhaustive research to come to a somewhat counterintuitive conclusion. I think you've done that again in this in this book. Can you talk a little bit about the research that you did to prepare for the Jolt effect? Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, one of the things is you remember, John, and listeners may be familiar with the, the research that went into the Challenger sale was based on survey data. We did a large right. scale global survey. Now, I'm a bit of a research geek and I've always been kind of jealous of what Professor Neil Rackham did way back in the day. Remember, he when he did his spin selling research, he and his team traveled the world and they sat in on like 30,000 sales calls. <laughs> and I could never get anybody to want to foot the bill for that. Uh, so, I, so, and you know, because the, the problem with studying sales conversations, as Professor Rackham found out, is that the really important ones always took place in the customer's office. But that all changed in March of 2020. 2020 when the pandemic rolled around and sales went virtual literally overnight. I mean, we were all doing some Zoom and Teams yeah. and WebEx calls, but it flipped to 100% virtual overnight. So we actually partnered up with several dozen companies and collected about two and a half million recorded sales calls hmm. starting in spring of 2020 and then used a machine learning platform from a company called Tether to do the analysis of that data. And we'll talk more in this show about what we found, but that was, I think I, I saw this as an opportunity. I said, this is the one time I'm going to get to study sales the way it's meant to be studied where the rubber hits the road. Yeah, that's fascinating. Uh, not to get too off track. I wonder if we'll, that behavioral stick. Yeah. Yeah. I think it will somewhat. I, so I, you know, pre 2020, I think if I were to guess, I would say, you know, for some companies, they were already hundred percent virtual selling like that, you know, startups, SaaS businesses that, you know, armies of headset wearing, you know, yeah. young salespeople, they were already selling on zoom. For the rest of us, I think we were also doing some calls and some interactions over Zoom and WebEx, but it was probably to the tune of maybe 30%, 40% of the sales right. process. It went to 100% overnight. Where will it settle to your question? I don't know. I'm guessing it's going to be probably around 70 to 80% because I think customers actually like it too. It's quite a convenient way to engage with suppliers and vendors. And it's actually you know quite a productive way to sell too. 
but I think sales leaders know and salespeople know that, you know, some of those critical interactions still better to be face to face if you can make it happen. Yeah. So in this book, based on the subtitle, and of course, uh, in your previous work as well, you don't take on closing, you take on attacking indecision. And in fact, you go as far as calling indecision, you know, dangerous. I mean, why for you is indecision such an important sales topic? Yeah. So one of the things that we've been monitoring over the years, you know, when we wrote the challenger sale, the big problem we were writing about was this phenomenon of customers learning on their own, you know, and yeah. boxing, the, boxing the salesperson out and forcing them to compete on price. We wrote the challenger customer. That was about the problem of consensus buying, you know, more and more people showing up at the buying committee and having to forge that consensus, which would be very, really difficult around complex purchases. This the, story, the problem we're writing about in the Jolt Effect is about this problem of indecision or, or salespeople, I think, call it no decision losses. What we found in our study is that anywhere between 40 and 60% of all opportunities are lost to no decision. Now, what's really fascinating is why that is and how that breaks down. But if you just think about that number, if you're a salesperson listening, if you're a leader running a team or a CEO or you know somebody running an organization, that is a massive productivity loss for all of us to pursue deals. And these are deals, to be clear, where the customer will go through the entire purchase process only to do nothing. So just a huge time suck in loss for our organizations. I remember the sort of classic work from David Sandler, you know, it was yeah. like quick, no, right. You, the indecision was the worst place to be. Oh, yeah. It was like, sure. I want a yes, or I want to no know so I can move on. Right. I agree more. That's fast. No is what we all should have smart. Yeah. 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 So, so it used to mean, and I say used to, because you're going to suggest otherwise that oh, the customer just doesn't have enough information. They can't decide on the value or they haven't equated the value they're going to receive with the cost. And, and so we had a whole set of tools to overcome that, but yeah. you're going to suggest that maybe is not the, your research, I guess, is going to suggest that might not be the most productive approach. Yeah. You know, so what we found, and I think salespeople around the world are very familiar with this idea of, you know, beating the customer status quo. And I think if you read any sales book, and by the way, I would include the sales books we've written, the challenger sale and otherwise, as well as all the great work that's been done over the years has all been centered around this idea that if the customer gets cold feet, if they start showing signs of winding up in that wasteland of no decision, it's the only possible reason is that you either haven't proven to them that what they do today is suboptimal, right? It's right. not good enough. You haven't created that burning platform. You haven't, or you haven't demonstrated the value of your solution relative to what they do today. So they don't see enough daylight, maybe. It might be that they say, hey, your solution, John, your solution is great, but it's not that much better than what we do today. What we do today is good enough. Or it might be that the change journey is too difficult, right? I, I totally see the daylight, but life is short and we have other priorities and <laughs> we just don't have the time and resources. But so it's always been taught that it's got to be that you did not put the status quo to bed. You know, the customer is still in the grips of the status quo or their preference for the status quo. What we found in our research is that is a big reason deals are lost to no decision. But it turns out it's the lesser of two reasons. The second reason actually has nothing to do with the customer's preference for their status quo. It's their own inability to make a decision, which we call customer indecision which itself is driven by three things. The first is the customer not knowing what to pick. We call this valuation problems. Like if we think about all the different configurations of our solutions, and we think about all the options, the partner integrations, the roadmap items, all these things we put in front of the customer, it's the customer looking at all those options and saying, they all look good. And I'm not 100% sure if I pick option A, 
maybe I should have picked B or C, and that might become an irreversible decision. The second source of indecision is a lack of information, or this is really the customer seeking more information, feeling like I haven't done enough homework. There's so much information out there, you know, so many white papers, so many webinars, so many podcasts to listen to, so many experts right. to consult, and I just am not smart enough about this decision. And it's a big decision, right? And then the third source of indecision is what we call outcome uncertainty. This is where the customer feels like they might be left holding the bag. I've got no assurance that this is all going to work out for me. And yeah, your ROI projections look great on paper and the demo was awesome and the proof of concept was great. But if this thing goes sideways, you know, heads are going to roll and it's usually going to be the person whose head rolls first is the person whose name is on the contract and that's me. So those, now those things, you know, I don't know what to pick. I haven't done enough homework. I might be left holding the bag have nothing to do with a preference for the status quo. It's a different set of things that the customer struggles with that we as salespeople need to learn to deal with and to manage through. Okay, one of the challenges as I listen to you describe that is it sounds like indecision looks a lot like status quo, right? I mean, it's like, because otherwise I'm admitting I'm afraid. 100%, you are, you nailed it. So the problem with peeling these things apart is they end up in the same outcome, which is the customer does nothing. But I think, again, we've always assumed the customer does nothing because you haven't proven the math of like, you know, the ROI or that the, what the pain of same, as we talk about in the challenger sale, but that other set of things, the customer will get wrapped around the axle around. And what we found was, again, this is the bigger source of no decision losses is these indecision drivers. Customers are not comfortable talking about this stuff. You know, no customer in the history of customers, certainly not in the two and a half million calls we analyzed, there were exam there were exactly zero customers who said, Hey, you know what, John? I gotta tell you, I'm a really indecisive person. Like, I can't pick what to watch on Netflix. I don't know what to order for dinner. You know, like nobody says stuff like that because these are concerns that are personal. And you know what it's rooted in is a fear of failure that is very personal. It's a worry that I might be sold on the A to B, that the status quo stinks and your solution is better and the change journey is worth it, but I'm still worried that I'm going to make a mistake. And you know, what we found is the psychological research, which we delved into pretty deeply, as you know, is pretty clear here that customers at the end of the day fear messing up more than they fear missing out. And so many times salespeople will go back and they'll try to dial up the pain of same and paint this picture for the customer of what they would stand to lose if they do nothing. But what they don't realize is the stuff that's keeping the customer from moving forward is their fear, not of doing nothing, but of actually doing something and making a big mistake in the process. And that is not stuff that customers are comfortable talking about. So, so a big part of the book is actually, how do we learn how to listen for those signs, those signals of indecision? And then when the customer is not giving anything to us, what are the ways we can elicit the responses from the customer for us to gauge that, or as we say in the book, judge the level of indecision? And now let's hear from a sponsor. Running a small business means doing it all. You deserve an online marketing platform that does the same. SEMrush is an all-in-one platform that will lighten the load, handle SEO, social media, and advertising all in one place. Attract new customers, save time and money on marketing, and get ahead of the competition. If you're new to online marketing, no problem. SEMrush will get you started. If you're ready to grow online, try SEMrush free at SEMrush.com slash now. That's S-E-M-Rush.com slash now. So you, and you obviously, the book presents a methodology. I shouldn't say yeah. obviously, but all good books do. And so a lot of what I'm hearing you saying is part of getting past indecision is figuring out how to dial down fear, the fear you're of purchasing. Yeah, you're absolutely right. We The shorthand we used in uh, in the book was this, if you're, the fear word is key yeah. here. 
So when we talk about beating the status quo, which again, just to be very clear, no salesperson is going to sell a thing if they don't beat the status quo. It's like passing go and collecting $200 in sales. You have to do it. If you don't do it, you're not going anywhere. The indecision is a secondary problem if you don't beat the customer status quo. But after you beat the status quo, what starts to creep into their mind are these fears of making a mistake. And the way we describe this is that salespeople have always been taught to believe that they only need one playbook, just beat that customer status quo. And what we're saying is you need two playbooks. You've got to beat the status quo, but you also have to overcome indecision. And the difference between those playbooks is this, beating the status quo is all about dialing up the fear of not purchasing. So here's what you stand to lose by not acting. And salespeople have been taught by many great trainers and writers and speakers for many years on uh, all the techniques to do that. So keep doing that. But after you do that, the second thing you need to do is overcoming decision. And that playbook is all about dialing down the fear of purchasing. And that's really different, right? And it's exactly what you said. It's about dealing with those fears, which are kind of the butterflies in the stomach, the voices in the back of the customer's head saying, boy, nobody ever got fired for maintaining the status quo. But a lot of times people do get fired for changing it if it doesn't work out. Yeah, right? yeah. <laughs> They'll forget it. They'll forget all about it if it works out, right? right. <laughs> so- It's almost like the new, and you say this specifically as one of the steps in the Jolt method is you almost have to be able to figure out a person's ability to make a decision. 100%. Yeah, you're right. In in the salespeople, we've always been taught, you know, we all know great salespeople don't chase garbage trucks. In your point about what Sandler said, you'll get that early no, you know, disqualified with bad fit opportunities right away. But I don't think we realize until now that great salespeople will qualify and disqualify on the, of course, on the customer's ability to buy use case fit, industry attractiveness, things like that. But not always, or not until now, do we appreciate they will disqualify, not just on ability to buy, but ability to decide. And that comes down to a few things. One is it's understanding this person as a decision maker. And are they displaying tendencies that are associated with indecisiveness. And so we, in the book, we talk all about those markers, what they look like, what they sound like in a sales call. Second, where is that indecision coming from? So not just this person, but what specifically are they worried about? Are they worried about making the wrong choice, not having done enough homework? Are they worried about being, not having no assurance of success? What's the source of the indecision? And then third, are there amplifiers out there, right? Is this a, is there time pressure? Is this a really big decision relative to other decisions this person or this company has made in the past that that amplify that latent indecision. All of this stuff is going to tell us how do we apply our jolt playbook or overcoming indecision playbook? You know, in what way do we deploy it? Second, how do we forecast this opportunity? And third, should we disqualify this opportunity? Is it worth our time? Does this, particularly in this step, does do we run the risk of kind of the cliched like trial closes of, you know, if we were able to come to a decision, could next Tuesday, could, you know, that kind of, I mean, is that what we're advocating here? Yeah, I think it's, I think it's a bit more nuanced than that, but I would, I think the parallel I would draw is, you know, because of what you said before, which I think is spot on that indecision is not a thing that people are comfortable talking about. It's right. personal. And our customers are people and they're not comfortable talking about it either. And they lose face when they talk about how they struggle to make decisions and they're feeling a lot of pressure and gosh, I I don't, what if I get fired if I sign this contract? And so we've got to do a good job. We talk, we talk about this kind of a sonar metaphor, which is if you're a boat on the surface of the water and you know, there's a submarine lurking down below, we've got two ways to go find that submarine. One is we can passively listen for it to make noise, right? We can, so that's all about listening 
and trying to pick up on those cues that the customer's showing behavior associated or emotions associated with indecision. But sometimes the customer is going to play it close to the vest. And when that happens, we've got to engage active sonar, which is sending out pings, right? Listening for those echoes. And the way we might do that is, and this is the parallel of what you said, John, is through kind of what we call as powerful articulations of what we think is going on in the customer's head. So it may not be hey, can we get this done on Tuesday next week? But rather, you know, John, my sense is this is a really big decision for you and you're not feeling completely confident that we've, we've, you know, eliminated all the other options and you have settled on the right package. Or I'm just, I'm feeling like you don't think you've done enough research here and you're a little bit in the dark still. Can you confirm that I misreading the situation? So it's a little bit different, right? But it's designed to articulate what we think is going on in the customer's head and then get them to respond to that and have a conversation. Yeah, so in fact, uh, instead of pressuring a decision, it's more like I'm going to invite some empathy. Yeah, Yeah. Yeah. well well said, yeah. So, so... As I listen to you talk about the reasons, some of the reasons, one of them would suggest that maybe we should slim our options down. Like here's, you want A or B, you know, and not put all the bells and whistles and all the possibilities. Is that, are you advocating for that as well? Yeah, we're sort of working our way through the playbook, but the J we just talked about a little bit was judging the level of indecision. The second one is the O, which you're talking about is offer recommendation. And, you know, this is a double-edged sword because I think having lots of options feels really good for our customer and it feels really good for us as salespeople and as marketers. And, you know, there's product people love it. It's just, there's a time and a place in the sale for a thousand flowers and let them bloom. And, you know, the world is the customer's oyster and it's exciting, right? You go to your website, you come by the demo, by the booth at the trade show in those first demos, talking about all the possibilities. It's really exciting. But what is exciting early on can actually end up leading to the customer wringing their hands about what seem like equally attractive options. Right. And so best salespeople know there's a time from to shift from asking the customer what they want to buy and throwing all these options out there to actually telling them what they should buy and making a firm and personal recommendation saying, you know, John, we've talked about a lot of options, but based on what I know about your company and other organizations like you, I think you're going to be really happy with this package. We can always add those other options later, but I don't want to, I don't want to waste your money and I don't want to waste your time thinking about things that I know, having seen this movie many times before, are not going to pay off for you guys. So let's focus in on this, forget the other stuff, and let's move forward. And that is a really powerful technique to get the customer through that that struggle they have of like, I've got 10 options and they all seem awesome. You know, which one should I pick? It's probably a bit of a trust builder too, particularly if you are oh. steering somebody to an option that's less complex, maybe less expensive, but right. Yeah. <laughs> Should be quite a trust builder. Right. This is a little simple example, but I remember when I first got started in, in my marketing agency. And one of the things we would do a lot of times with a new client is design or redesign a logo. That was such yeah. a classic thing. And yeah. so, you know, first off, I'd start off with six variations and we got nowhere because they just, you know, so then finally learned is like, here's A and here's B and here's why A is so much better than B. Uh, (laughs) I was like, okay, we're done. Yeah, learn through experience. This is the thing. I mean, you know, people who've been out there, I mean, they look back and I know every time I tell people about this, like, oh, that's why I do that. But, you know, the, the research here is really clear that, again, options are cut both ways. They can be great up front, but they can consternate the customer and cause this this indecision, this va- these valuation problems later. And it is about providing a limited set and providing that f- personal seal of approval to make that customer feel like, okay, this is where I should go. And you hit on something really important. Underpinning all of this stuff is the ability of the salesperson to overcome the agency dilemma, right? Because they've got to be trusted. And one of the things you pointed out is key. 
sometimes making a recommendation that's cheaper than the one the customer wants is a phenomenal way to to build that trust and that credibility with the customer. So so we are working through J-O-L-T. And so I think we're up to L and I think that's limiting the ability for them to have to go out and research, I guess. So yeah. unpack. Yeah. Limiting the exploration is the L. And this one, again, back to that, you know, overcoming that natural distrust that often exists between customers and salespeople. You know, last I checked, Jedi mind tricks still don't work in sales, but so the <laughs> likelihood a customer who's, who could say to us, our salesperson could say to a customer who is, you know, swimming in information and wants to read every white paper and wants to wait for the right. next Gartner Magic Quadrant report to come out and all this stuff and talk to their LinkedIn network and all this stuff. The last thing a salesperson can pull off is saying, you know, you don't need to consume that information. That's not, you know, <laughs> I have all the answers. They've got to build that trust, but they've also got to demonstrate subject matter expertise. And I think this is where in our analysis, we find a lot of average salespeople go wrong. You know, they tend to bring in other people to do the demos. They tend to, you know, they, they act as almost glorified admins. And what best salespeople do is they try to own that conversation as far down the path as possible. Now, look, they don't get over the tips of their skis. If they need to rely on somebody else to provide an answer, they'll do it. They'll bring in their head of product. They'll bring in the solutions engineer, but they carefully orchestrate that call. So it doesn't turn into a, you know, hey, I brought John's our head of engineering. John, take it away. Because by the way, John hates when you do that, first of all, because <laughs> he's not the sales guy. And second of all, it diminishes your credibility as a seller. So, you know, things like that, it, we also talk about anticipating, listening between the lines when you rebut an objection the customer has, the way they respond, looking for those signs of implicit non-acceptance and proactively suggesting objections to the customer they haven't even articulated yet, which again, instill that confidence that, okay, I'm talking to somebody I can trust, but also somebody who really knows their stuff, you know? So I don't need to be an expert. I can put my myself in the hands of this person. It's almost like if you or I were to go plan a trip to an exotic location where we had never been, think about the confidence yeah. you have talking to a great travel advisor or travel agent who's planned a thousand phenomenal trips for people just like you to say, you know what? I know enough about what you're looking for. Here's the itinerary I recommend. It's like, boy, that is awesome. Yeah, it's an interesting analogy because I certainly would rather go that route as long as I trust that they understand yes. what I want, right? That's and once, once I, yeah, once I know they get me, then it's like, I'm going to take your recommendation. So Ooh. great analogy. The, the last one, since we've been talking about fear and fail, you know, I'm going to fail, T is to actually give them a bit of a safety net. That's right. So now yeah. is that something that you're going to go in selling? You're going to realize, hey, they're going to want this assurance or is that a sort of a last ditch thing? You know, it's interesting because I just had this conversation with, with a sales leader recently. And I think this one, you're just based on our analysis, this concern about outcome uncertainty. You know, I trust you, put myself in your hands, I'm with you. But there's still this voice saying like, what if it doesn't work out? Like, what if I, we don't get the ROI they're projecting? And what we found is that a lot of this stuff creeps up late in the game. It's like I described it as the distance between the tip of the customer's pen and the contract. And that's made up of outcome <laughs> uncertainty, right? And right. It'll, so it'll manifest, it rears its head late, but there are ways we can get ahead of it. We can get ahead of it by not, you know, not duping the customer with like gaudy ROI projections, but instead setting reasonable expectations and sure. then saying, hey, anything beyond that, which we've seen before is gravy, but I want you to be focused on this because if we're focused on this and build the business case around that, I know you're going to look like a hero. And by the way, I'm pretty sure we're going to outperform. Things that you see high performers doing early on, but then late, you know, when the customer's like, boy, this is a, John, this is a huge decision for our company. I just, what if something goes wrong? 
there are creative confidence givers we can provide as well. Everything from, you know, on the formal end, I'll give you one example, a company that I spoke to recently sells high-end robotics to manufacturing companies. And a lot of these companies are going through automation, shifting from manual work to automated lines, you know, for the first time. And one sure. of their big concerns is buying expensive robotic equipment and then having folks on the factory floor, you know, break it. And so they created an insurance policy that you can buy with your robots that for, you know, small percentage of the total contract value, you know, for a low deductible, if something goes wrong, you're not going to have to buy another hundred or $200,000 robot. You can, for a thousand bucks, get it replaced. And so that's a formal version of taking risk off the table, but there are lots of informal ones too, showing our customer the rollout plan that we've used with other customers, the milestones, the KPIs, the do's and the don'ts that show them, well, you guys have, you've done this before, you know what you're doing, you know where the bodies are buried and the landmines are and the pitfalls are, this is great. But also things like executive sponsors. I mean, this can be a really powerful tool to use in certain instances where you can say, hey, my CEO personally takes on 10 new customers a year and I would like to nominate you to be one of those accounts. And if so, he's going to be, he or she's going to be on the QBRs. They're going to, you can have that person's mobile number. You can call them day or night and they will swarm the problem. So like things like that make the customer feel like, okay, I'm not jumping out of a plane without a parachute here. I, you've got my back. Yeah. Awesome. Speaking with Matthew Dixon about the Jolt effect. Matt, you want to tell people where they can catch up with you? And obviously I know the book will be available anywhere that books are sold. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Check out the jolteffect.com and we've got lots of free resources on there, events we're running, different ways you can learn about putting some of these ideas into practice in your own organization and continue the learning journey. But you're right, wherever books are sold, you can you can pick up the book. And then if you do, if you did pre-order the book, please send us your receipt at pre-orders at jolteffect.com. And I will invite you to a special event we're hosting in early October with some guests. So. Awesome. And as always, we'll have the links in the show notes. So great catching up with you again, Matt, and hopefully we'll run into you one of these days out there on the road soon. Perfect. Thank you, John. Hey, and one final thing before you go, you know how I talk about marketing strategy, strategy before tactics. Well, sometimes it can be hard to understand where you stand in that, what needs to be done with regard to creating a marketing strategy. So we created a free tool for you. It's called the Marketing strategy assessment. You can find it at marketingassessment.co, not .com, .co. Check out our free marketing assessment and learn where you are with your strategy today. That's just marketingassessment.co. I'd love to chat with you about the results that you get.